not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses, I just want to be free from the power weakness head on. Everyone and welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm Jean McCarthy, recovery author, blogger, and podcast host. I've been chronicling my adventures in life after alcohol since my first day of sobriety over nine years ago in my blog Unpickled and in books like the Unpickled Holiday Survival Guide and my poetry collection, The Ember Ever There. I tell my stories there. And I hold space for your stories here. And today I'm holding space for Darcy. Hi, Darcy. Welcome to the Bubble Hour. Hi, Jean. Wonderful to be here. I'm glad you're here. We went through quite the little rigmarole of technical hiccups. And with neither one of us being technical wizards, we made it through. So we've already accomplished something today. <laughs> yes. We're off to a good start here. Yes, we, we bonded. It was like a, a bonding exercise at the start of a convention or something where you sit with a stranger and solve a problem before you do anything else. So there we are. <laughs> yes. So thank you for being here. I'm going to turn the mic over to you, Darcy. Tell us about yourself and tell us your story. Okay, thank you so much. Well, just to start with, I just want to say it's an absolute honor and very almost surreal to be here talking with you right now. Um, the Bubble Hour holds a very near and dear place in my heart in that I was able, fortunate enough to get sober September 24th, 2019, so almost 15 months ago. And leading up to that day, especially the last few months when I was really, really struggling, the Bubble Hour was a safe place for me to go to turn and it provided me with so much hope in that I didn't know how I was going to get sober but I knew that I could and listening to the stories that are shared here you know people would say all the time well if I can do it then you could do it and I believed that and I was like you know I don't know how this is going to happen but I just know somehow I'm going to figure this out and it was from listening to these stories that I was able to just keep on trying and be hopeful and I used to walk and listen to these stories and I would think in my you know to myself when I was walking I'm going to be one of those people on there someday sharing my story and hopefully providing the same kind of inspiration and motivation and hope and willingness to someone else that was provided to me and it will all come full circle. And so just being here and, and talking with you and going through the process this morning, it was just, I mean, I am nervous, but at the same time, I'm so excited because I feel like this is exactly where I should be and where I hoped to be, you know, several, several months ago. So I'm honored. So I'll start with that. So just to go in, I guess, start at the beginning of my story. So childhood for me, I was thinking a lot about this and kind of, you know, practicing on what to say. And really, I would say my childhood was a very good childhood. That being said, it wasn't without some hardships. And I think that 
as an adult and doing a lot of self-work now and looking back at some childhood things, there was definitely stuff that was challenging and difficult and affected me more than I realized at the time. But for all intents and purposes, I had a really great childhood. The hardest thing that I did experience was at four years old, my parents got divorced. So that to me was a confusing time in that I didn't understand what had happened. Like, I think as a, as a young child, especially around that four-year-old age, you kind of live in a magical world and, you know, it, it's a magical time in a sense. And so to me, it just seemed like my dad just disappeared. I just didn't really understand where he went. And I'd get to see him here and there, and I'd get to visit here and there, but I live with my mom and we didn't live super close by to my dad. And so I didn't get to see him all that often. And I didn't really understand what, what that was about. I just thought that he kind of just disappeared from my life. And it made me very worried and scared that my mom was going to disappear too. I just thought I would wake up one morning and maybe she would be gone. And that was kind of that world that I lived in, in terms of a small kid, not really understanding what was going on. I, I think my parents must've explained to me, I don't remember that, but I just know I was really scared all the time. Something was going to happen to my mother. I used to sleep upside down in my bed so I could see her walk past the doorway or I'd sleep at the top of the stairs so I could hear her voice. Like I was just very scared something was going to happen to her. And, um, I also kind of taught myself looking back at, you know, childhood and a lot of my core values, I think that, you know, maybe if I was the best kid I could be and as good as I could possibly be, then she wouldn't leave or something wouldn't happen to her or kind of like this reward punishment thing where if something bad happened to me, well, I must have done something to deserve that. Or if something good happened to me, then I must have done something to deserve that. So I very early on developed this kind of need for perfectionism, need for praise, need for, um, I didn't ever want to disappoint anybody. So I just think that that roots back to a lot of childhood stuff, but my mom got remarried when I was six and had my little brother and sister who are my half brother and sister. And I have an amazing relationship with my stepfather and my brother and sister. My, my mom and my stepdad have been now married for almost 34 years. And I was very fortunate in the sense that everybody got along. So my mom and my dad got along. My dad and my stepdad got along. We would all go to family functions together, like a very adult, mature kind of, um, everyone acted very mature about everything. And I never suffered greatly from, you know, them talking ill of each other or their fighting or something like that. So, or as a child, divorce can be very hard, but I was lucky in the sense that it could have been so much worse. And I ended up with two loving fathers. When I got married, both of them walked me down the aisle, one on each side, you know, it was just, I was really fortunate in that sense, but the divorce was hard for me and that I just didn't understood. And I think it, it set up some fear of abandonment issues there. And then as far as drinking goes in my growing up household, 
it wasn't super, again, in, in hindsight, I think there was maybe more going on there than I realized now as an adult and now being someone in recovery and just more aware of all of that. I think there was some stuff, issues here and there with alcohol, but growing up, it was never a big deal. There was drinking in the house, but it was more social or with gatherings. I never remember it standing out to me in any sort of awareness as a problem um, between family, friends, and, and growing up. My first drink was when I was 15. I was in high school and I had, it was the end of a summer work kind of party. And it was a Corona. I still remember that. And I do, I just had the one, but I do remember feeling like, wow, this, this is amazing. And the sense of the freedom that it just lifted so much off my shoulders in terms of the constant maybe worry and anxieties. And I was a thinker. I was always a thinker. So it was like, it just shut that off for me. And I do remember thinking, wow, I just feel so free. And, and that was new and amazing to me. I did go to the occasional high school party here and there. And I did kind of experiment as a teenager here and there, but uh, academics and athletics was really, really important to me. And uh, I was kind of one of those teenagers that was friends with everybody in every kind of friends groups, the jocks and the, and the brainy kids and the cool kids. And I kind of just fit in it everywhere. And, and I would, I would do what the cool kids were doing, but without it interfering with my, my getting a, A's and and running track and playing volleyball, you know. So I I didn't really have too much of a struggle with it, but I definitely experimented here and there. And then I would say into college, it ramped up to the next level. Again, I think very much normalized in the way that it does when when people are in college. I was a very much work hard during the week and party hard on the weekend, sort of a college student. But again, academics was so incredibly important to me. It was a big piece of how I identified myself was being good at school and doing well in school. I really liked learning. I always, I was one of those people where my my roommates would try to get me to go out on Thursday night was college night. And I'd say, no, I've got class tomorrow morning. And I hated missing class. I hated having to borrow someone else's notes because they were never as good as my notes. And I like to just be there in person and hear it for myself. And when I was focused in on what I needed to do, there wasn't really much that would distract me from it or take me away from it. But then once all was accomplished and all of my responsibilities were filled and and I had you know achieved what I felt like I needed to, then it was game on. It was party time. And so I would say that was definitely where the beginnings of maybe the mindset or the attitude of, well, I've worked hard, I deserve this, or I've achieved A, B, and C, so I deserve this, or the justification of, you know, it's not interfering with anything of my responsibilities. Again, in hindsight, I can look back and go, okay, yeah, this is where problems with alcohol were starting, 
But at the time, you don't see that and you look around and everyone else is doing the exact same thing that you are. I mean, if anything, I was more responsible than a lot of the people that were I was surrounded by. So I really didn't see any of it as a problem. But it was definitely where binge drinking became normal. For me, I, I graduated and had amazing grades, uh, did extremely well academically there. I decided I wanted to become a physical therapist. And so I did what I needed to do to get in a graduate school program. And I ended up starting graduate school and I got my doctorate in physical therapy. And graduate school, again, was very much more of the same in terms of work hard during the week and party hard on the weekend. And all of the people I socialized with were pretty much the same. In graduate school, that's when I started dating my now husband. Him and I have known each other since second grade. We, we went to the same elementary school and, and junior high and high school, and we were friends all through college. And so we have a long history. But him and his friends and his social life, it was all very much the same. Um, we were all in higher level educations, and we took that very seriously. But then we also took our party time seriously as well. And then after graduating, I got a job at a local orthopedic clinic right out of school, started my career. By 26, 27, I, I'd achieved everything, all my goals I'd set out to achieve. It was a very exciting and fun time that continued. I did start to feel internally something was off with my drinking, feeling like, is this normal? Is this healthy? Is this okay? Like I started to kind of innately know something was wrong or didn't feel right or I was uncomfortable with what my relationship with alcohol was starting to look like. And that was from the binging standpoint. I remember maybe around 30, 29, 30 years old, Googling for the first time, am I an alcoholic? Well, what is an alcoholic? Well, is binge drinking an alcoholic? Does binge drinking mean you're going to turn into an alcoholic? You know, I, I drink Fridays and Saturdays a lot, but then I don't for five days. So that can't possibly be an alcoholic. You know, all these questions starting to come up about my relationship with alcohol, but it was very easy to kind of brush aside. Again, I was accomplishing everything I needed to. It wasn't interfering with my life or function. And everyone else around me was doing the same thing. So I really thought I was just normal. So anyways, I had my, I have twins. I have twin boys that are nine years old. But when I had the twins, that's where something kind of shifted in that I started drinking during the week. And it seemed pretty benign at the time. I went back to work around the time the boys were six months old, and I went back part-time. I worked Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, and I'd work 10-hour days, so they were really long. But then I had Tuesdays and Thursdays home with my boys. And so that's where, you know, I'd come home on a Monday after working a super long shift and being, you know, 100% present for all my patients and then having to come home and transition into mom mode with little twin boys and all of that, I, I remember thinking, oh gosh, a glass of wine just sounds so good. 
you know, those things we, we've been conditioned to kind of the mommy wine culture. You know, I deserve it and I've worked so hard and mommy deserves a glass of wine. I'm hyper aware of it now, but at the time, again, I just thought this was just kind of a normal wine culture mom thing that I deserved. And I, I fit right into that. I guess I was the target audience for that media and it worked on me. I do remember going, okay, well, it's Monday night and have a glass of wine or two and and it's not a big deal. I don't have to go to work tomorrow. I'm home with the boys. That's where things kind of transitioned into actually drinking during the week. And up until that point, it was very much a only on the weekends, never during the week sort of a thing. And it and it transitioned that way for my husband too. It wasn't just me and we would drink together. Things carried on like that for a while. I don't remember it ever being a huge problem, although I was very aware of it going to a new level in terms of drinking during the week. And I do remember it was always hard for me to stop once I started. You know, once I had one glass, two or three sounded really good. And then feeling the next day like I probably didn't need to do that. So there was starting to be these questions in my mind and discomforts and wondering if this was okay. 2015, my husband and I decided that we wanted to try for another baby. The boys were about three to four-ish, and we felt ready to... I, I grew up in a family of three, and I loved having my brother and sister around, and, and kind of always envisioned a family of three for myself. I ended up getting pregnant right away, and I had a miscarriage at about eight weeks. That was definitely hard and a new experience in that my first pregnancy with the boys, I didn't have any trouble at all. I mean, especially with twins, it was just about as easy as it could have been. And I was very naive to, I think, I thought, well, if I can have two at once, one's going to be easy, you know, and then I ended up having a lot of difficulty there. But I knew that it wasn't just unfortunately part of fertility and it happens unfortunately to a lot of people. I talked to friends and family. My mom had had a couple and you kind of start talking about it and you realize that it's, it's fairly normal. After that, I got pregnant again right away. Of course, this time I was very nervous. That first 12 weeks or that first trimester is always, I always talk about how that's kind of a touchy one in that if something generally is going to happen, that's when it's going to be. And so I was kind of walking on pins and needles with that whole first three months. And then we had done some testing because of my age. I was 35 at the time and kind of puts you into this tier of some other testing chromosomally and things like that. And so we ended up deciding to do some testing and everything was coming back normal. There was no signs of Down syndrome or any other chromosomal problems. Uh, my genetic counseling had gone well. And then we'd also found out we were having a little boy. Everything was pretty much hunky-dory after that. I, I hit my 12 weeks, wasn't having any problems, carrying on like normal. And then my husband and I went in between 20 and 21 weeks is kind of the normal time you go in for your anatomy ultrasound. And we went in and saw the doctor. and. She walks in and I could tell right from the beginning that something was wrong. Even still at this time, it's so hard to talk about. So forgive the emotion, but um, there was a lot wrong with my little boy. And um, it was all bad news. He had a lot of neurological issues showing up on the anatomy in terms of his brain and his spinal cord. And our our doctor immediately referred us to high-risk neonatologist and by high-risk 
radiologists and OBs. For the next week, we went through tons of appointments to try to figure out what was going on and how bad it was and what our options were. Our options were all really bad. I still have a hard time talking about this part because I really do fear people's poor judgment of me and I don't want anyone to think I'm a bad person. It's hard to talk about because I worry that if someone listens to this, they're going to they're gonna think poorly of me. But the reality is, is it was the choice that my husband and I had to make for our family and our sons. And the doctors basically said that if I continued to carry my son, he would probably die in utero. And if he did, that would create possible complications for me and my health. I could try to keep carrying him and see what would happen, but the end result was he was going to die eventually, or we could terminate. And so my husband and I ended up deciding what was best for us was to go through a termination process because I couldn't stand the fact to know I had this little baby inside me growing that was so sick and so unhealthy and getting that much more connected and attached to him and then knowing that I was going to lose him. And, you know, my boys were four at the time. They knew they were going to have a little brother and they were coming up and rubbing my belly and touching it because it was, I was showing and everything and talking to him through my belly and stuff. And it was like, how do I explain to them to have my belly keep growing, but knowing that this baby is dying? So we decided to make the hardest decision we have ever made, I have ever made in my entire life thus far. And we terminated the pregnancy. And that process was incredibly traumatic. Uh, it took two days to go through that process. And it was living in an absolute nightmare the entire time. I remember being at home, sitting in my recliner chair with my mom, because my mom came down to help take care of the boys so that my husband and I could go through the procedure that we needed to. And sitting there just sobbing and telling my mom, I am in so much pain right now. It's something that I had to live through. And I know there's other women out there that have gone through this. And it is incredibly traumatic. You know, going through the whole process, it was really horrible. And all I have from all of that is I have his little handprints and I have pictures, ultrasound pictures, and that's all I have. And I really literally tried to pretend like I was fine. I had to go on with my life. It was getting into Christmas time. And here I have these little boys that, you know, are excited about Christmas and family we're supposed to see. And I really just tried tried to dive in back to life and pretend that I was okay and that I was strong and that, you know, everything was going to be fine. And I did not allow myself to grieve. I didn't talk to any therapists. I really didn't do anything to get the help that I needed after going through something like that. And I really paid for it in terms of my drinking ramped up to a whole new level. And that was the first time where I really remember using alcohol in a way to escape and to numb and to um, not feel. You know, up until that point, 
alcohol and drinking had always been something that did make me feel a level of freedom and escape in a way that was like just turning off the constant craziness that was always going on in my head. But it wasn't a coping mechanism for pain. And that really shifted after going through that pregnancy loss. I had so much guilt and shame about what had happened, even though none of it was really in my control. Somehow I felt like it was my fault. And so I just didn't know how to deal with all of those feelings. And I didn't talk to anybody about it. I started to really drink more. I would drink to black out. It just, it went to a whole new level there. And it was about six months after that pregnancy loss, I remember calling my husband at work and being at home crying. I canceled my patients for the day. I couldn't see anybody and telling him on the phone, can you please come home and be with me because I don't want to be by myself. And I was starting to have those thoughts of the world would be a better place without me in it. I didn't care if I was alive or if I was dead. And I felt like my family deserved someone better than me as their wife and mother. And those thoughts really scared me. And so I called him and he came home. And of course, I think it scared him too. We ended up going to the hospital. I think we were both thinking I was having like a psychiatric meltdown, which I was really. I was honest with them in terms of my drinking. And I told them, I, I'm, I think I'm drinking way too much. I'm using it as a coping me mechanism. And so from there, it opened up this new doorway into some treatment that involved therapy, as well as getting hooked up with doctors and therapists that were in, involved with chemical dependency and substance abuse. And I still wasn't really thinking that alcohol was the problem. I was thinking, like I think a lot of people think, that if, if I can fix this depression and this trauma and deal with the grief and all of that, then the alcohol issue will just go away. It's just a side effect of this other stuff. In a way, I'm so thankful all that happened because it did open up this new door for me to explore with my therapist, Norma, who was amazing. And she never pushed me too hard in terms of the alcohol stuff. I could be very honest with her. She recommended I start going to some group sessions that were all other women. And, and there was some that were male too. But everyone in these groups were, had substance-related issues. But they also had their own traumas and struggles. And so that was my first exposure to getting into a group setting and talking honestly about what I was feeling and what I was going through and how I was managing it. And it got kind of me comfortable to be vulnerable and be honest and know that it was okay to do that because leading up to that, I would have never thought about sitting down and telling a bunch of strangers about what I was feeling that day. So it just opened the door to a lot of things. And I started to have moments of sobriety where it's like, well, okay, I'll go ahead and not drink for 30 days and see how I feel. Or I'll go ahead and drink, not drink for a couple months and see how I feel. I kind of never planned to give it up. It was just that whole let's manage and moderate and control. And if I read enough and I learn enough, I can outsmart this this problem. You know, this isn't me. I'm not an alcoholic. That was about a four-year time frame of me going through that 
it was a very sober, curious time. I had read a sentence somewhere where it's like, curiosity is the best first step. And for me, that's where it did start because it gave me a place to start to explore my relationship with alcohol. I'd been feeling like it was a problem leading up into that, but I didn't really know much about the disease. It gave me a place to start exploring. And I started to really learn a lot. I had moments of sobriety in there. And then I would kind of go back to drinking in my old ways. And usually it would go be ramped up a notch. Like they always say, it's progressive. It would kind of go to that next level and it would scare me. So I'd back off and and stop for a while or try to moderate for a while, but eventually would always get back to that same level, if not a little bit worse. It was lots of up and downs. My husband and I decided that we still wanted to try for another child. We decided we were going to try again. It was extremely important to me to be 100% as healthy as possible. We had done a little bit of fertility checking just to see if there was anything going on in my end and just try to have all of our bases covered. I had stopped drinking leading up to the pregnancy. And it was right around 90 days, coincidentally, that I found out I was pregnant. And we did all the same testing. And I found out I was pregnant with a little girl. And of course, the entire pregnancy, I was just waiting for the other shoe to drop at some point of someone to tell me something was wrong or something bad was going to happen. It was really a scary time based on the trauma that I had gone through before, I did know I was about as healthy as I could possibly be. So that was comforting. Three weeks after my daughter was born that I decided a glass of wine sounded good. So it was almost a year exactly where I hadn't had anything to drink. So I didn't ever drink during my pregnancy. But after my daughter was born, that little switch or light bulb came on, even after knowing everything that I'd known and stopping for a year and all of that, I thought a glass of wine sounds good. And then over the course of 10 months, I went downhill at first slowly and then very quickly at the end. It was like they say, you, you kind of pick up where you left off or you get back to that point where you left off and then you surpass it. I was lying to my husband. I was sneaking alcohol. I was hiding it in my closet. I had never really talked to anyone else close to me about my my fears with drinking and my suspected issue with it because I knew once I started to talk about it with them, like once you ring that bell, you can't really unring it and I didn't want to be watched and I didn't want to I didn't want to feel like people were keeping an eye on me. So my husband had gone through all of this process with me, so he was aware and I felt like he was watching me. So I felt like the only way I could drink the amount that I wanted to was if I started hiding it. You know, at one point in the last few months, he had caught me in my closet with a box of wine. And that was incredibly embarrassing and traumatic. And I thought, oh my gosh, I've got to change. This is just, this is just so ridiculous. And then, of course, I didn't. Um, I even had a point in there over a weekend of binging so hard that I was afraid I was going to or possibly did have a seizure and that still didn't make me stop. I mean, it's just ridiculous at this point that we get to because I was still really binging. I, I would manage to not drink on the during the week, but then on the weekend it was really full game on and excessive. And I guess 
from what I've heard from doctors is sometimes that's the perfect recipe for seizures is that extreme starting and stopping. So I was always scared of that. I was starting to worry about my health declining. I was starting to feel pain in my right side where my liver was. And I convinced myself I had liver problems, but I was still drinking. It's just the insanity of keeping on doing things that you know are, are harmful. But I mean, I guess that's addiction. I was really getting to a bad place. And so the last weekend before deciding to get sober, I had gone up north with all my roommates from college. We were doing a mom's weekend away and it was a, a, a wine festival. I kind of inherently knew that it was going to be my last hurrah. I had a great time that weekend and seeing friends and managed to not make too much of a fool of myself or anything, but came home from that. And then I just couldn't stop. Like Sunday night, I kept drinking and then Monday into Monday and Tuesday. And that's where it was getting for me at the end was the binging. Once I started, I was having major withdrawal symptoms like the shaking and I couldn't eat and I wasn't sleeping and it was like the only way I would start to feel better is if I started drinking again and it would make it really, really difficult to stop. The turning point for me was on a Tuesday. I had canceled all my patients I was supposed to see that day. My kids were in school. My husband was at work and I was pacing around my house, just pacing, um, shaking, dry heaving. And I knew if I just could drink something, I would feel better. I knew I couldn't drink any of the alcohol that we had in our house because my husband would be aware. I drove around the corner to the liquor store around the corner and I bought a bottle of vodka, but it was a small, small one. But I came home and I drank that. And I remember having this clarity hit me. I felt immediately better from all the physical feelings I was feeling, but I also had enough mental clarity now that I had this alcohol in my system to know this is really, really bad. And I just crossed another line. I said I would never cross. I had never gone and bought hard alcohol and done what I did. And I used to always say, well, it's not that bad. I don't do this. Well, I just did it. I just crossed this line I set up for myself. And I was at this new low, but I also had this moment of like, I can't do this anymore. I just can't live like this anymore. I knew my husband was on his way home from work. He had picked up the kids from school and I met him in the driveway. I didn't, they didn't even get out of the car. I just met him in the driveway. And I said, I need you to take me to the hospital. You know, again, that it, it stirs up that emotion because it was such a hard one of the hardest things I've done, but I'm so thankful for it. But with all three of my kids in the car, he drove me to the hospital and dropped me off in front of the emergency room. And I walked in by myself and they drove away. I sat in there and I told the doctor, I've been drinking for five days straight and I'm afraid I'm going to have a seizure and I'm having anxiety and I can't stop and I need help. I cannot do this by myself anymore. I need help. And so from that point, I had this willingness hit me like a ton of bricks, thank goodness, to just do whatever I was told to do. My way was not working anymore. 
I didn't have all the answers as smart as I was, as educated as I was, as hard as I tried, as perfect as I tried to be. I did not have all the answers and I needed help. You know, they sent me home with some detox medication and they contacted the local rehabilitation program that was associated with the hospital. And six days later, I got to start an IOP program, which is an intensive outpatient program. So I didn't go into actual inpatient residency. I was able to go Monday through Friday from 8 a.m. to 2.30. And then I'd get be able to you know, pick up my kids from school and do all of the evening routine and do everything that I needed to feel like I needed to do and be a part of as a mother. I stopped working for that month and I did this program for 30 days. And while I was in this program, I literally did everything they told me to do. I, I took notes. I tried to soak in as much as I could. I just, I really did honestly love it because I felt this new sense of purpose or freedom in that I was finally just letting go and letting someone else tell me what to do. And I just follow the directions. That's all I had to do was just follow the directions. And so when they said to join AA, I did. When they said to get a sponsor, I did. And to start working the steps, I did. And I didn't question it and I didn't fight it. Um, I just did what I was told and I tried to have an open mind. And also, you know, I, I was told a lot throughout the process to just have faith and to trust. And I did. And I just kept thinking, these people have gone through this. You know, this is their profession. This is their specialty, just like I have mine. And when I explain or tell my patients to do certain things, it's because it's from my knowledge basis and my specialty, well, this is what these guys are here to do. And they know their job and they know what they're talking about. And I just need to listen. So I finished my 30-day program. I did probably five meetings a week. I tried all different kinds. I would go where they fit into my schedule and my day. Um, I wasn't picky. I tried to just have an open mind and not be like, well, that one's not for me. Or, you know, I just kind of sampled everything. And I kept doing that. I got to about five months, and I think that's when the pandemic stuff started. Everything transitioned to Zoom meetings, and I just kept with it. I kept going to my normal meetings and groups. I still, to this day, attend three Zoom meetings a week. They are all women's meetings, but I, I sometimes will go to some co-ed stuff too. But I have kind of my home core group of women that I just absolutely love. And they're such a source of support for me that, you know, I look forward to attending these meetings three days a week. They're really fantastic. I got my six month and my nine month and my 12 month chips all in quarantine <laughs> and, and managed to do it. And I just feel like I got to keep sticking with what's working and what's working is staying connected in whatever way that I can, making self-care be a priority, whatever that might look like for me. For me, it's a lot of exercise and it's a little bit of time to myself. Like my husband knows that I need a break from all of them, my three kids, or mentally, I really struggle with being overstimulated. It's been a lot of work in terms of learning what it is that I need 
And then once I finally figure out what I need, how to communicate it, because in the beginning, you're so lost. It's like you don't even really know what it is that you need. And that's why I feel like the the rehabilitation program and AA was so helpful for me personally, because other people could kind of see what I needed and then just tell me and then I would just follow direction because in the beginning I just really had no clue and I kind of just didn't trust myself and and what my judgments were and so I just if someone said I think you need to maybe go on a long walk and and then do some meditation after it's like okay that sounds good I'll do that <laughs> because I just didn't really know what it was that I needed and then now at 15 months of sobriety, I'm really feeling connected to myself in a way that I never thought was possible. Not only do I like myself, I actually love myself. It feels good to put myself first. You know, I have a Peloton bike and sometimes the teachers will say in the classes, going up this big hill, you know, imagine something at the top of this hill that you that's worth working for and getting there. And I think I'm going to imagine myself at the top of this hill because I'm worth it. And I used to, it always used to be, well, my kids or my family or my job. And it's like, no, I am, I am worth it. I am important. And it's taken a long time to get to that point, especially through all of the ups and downs. But I just wouldn't trade any of it because the journey was how I got to this point. And I'm just so grateful and so honored to be able to share that with all of you guys. Because like I heard on the bubble hour before, if I can do it, anybody can do it. It is possible. You just can't give up. So that's my story. Aww. Darcy, your story is powerful. I feel like curling up on the floor <laughs> and having a little cry <laughs> after, after riding the waves of your story with you. I mean, you tell it so well, and I thank you for your openness to revisit some really painful moments in the recent past that you walked through and survived. I wrote pages of questions and actually a lot of them you answered as quickly as I was writing them. Oh good. <laughs> Which How tells efficient. me that you've, you've, yeah, you're very efficient. You've thought a lot about things, but I can tell that as you tell your story there's a lot of introspection as well that you haven't just thought about what happened but what it meant to you. And and that's really insightful too. I want to, I guess, focus on something you said, which is that you had a willingness to walk into the hospital and ask for help. So many times the word willingness comes up on this show and just when we talk about people in recovery. And I think it's why so many people relapse again and again and again is because they, they want to be well, but willingness, I mean, we can't always just pull it out of thin air, right? There's a lot of people who want willingness and yet don't know even how to um, contextualize it or what it is. Like what, what words, other words can you attach to that concept to help make it take shape for people that might be seeking it and not exactly sure what, what it is that they haven't got yet? Yeah, that's an amazing question because it's so true. For me, willingness has been something that's become much more of a topic of conversation and discussion and kind of exploring because of my connection with AA. 
and within that program, willingness is a big piece of what we talk about and discuss. So I think that that's kind of why you hear it in recovery a lot. But I don't, I definitely don't think it has to be associated with AA alone because it is such a important piece to to being able to just start to explore sobriety and recovery. And as far as other words, like. I try to think about, well, what are the biggest things, the key things that I needed? And I always say it was the willingness, the acceptance, and then having faith, basically just trusting that it was going to all work out one way or another, even though I couldn't see how. And so I don't know if maybe faith and willingness can go together. And when I say faith, it doesn't have to be religiously connotated. It's more of just that trusting that it will work out even if the answers aren't right in front of you or you can't follow the path of how that the end result will be that it's going to be okay. Would you say that's maybe hope? Is hope another word for that? Yeah. I would say hope, like listening to the to this podcast in the bubble hour when I would be really in the midst of struggle with with knowing I had a deep, deep problem, but not knowing how I was going to what I was going to do about it. I always had hope. Luckily for me, I never gave up that somehow I would figure this out or that it would work out somehow. I always had hope, but I I still didn't have the willingness for so long to do literally whatever it took, whatever it took. And, you know, I, I was, I still, I was afraid of seizures. I was hiding and lying to my husband and getting caught in the middle of doing it, but I still wasn't willing to stop. So for me, the willingness was a whole new level of, to give it all over and just kind of surrender because I had to really surrender my control, Mm -hmm. at least in the Mm -hmm. beginning and just stop trying to manage every little thing. And, you know, I can be a really kind of a, yeah, but person like, well, yeah, but it wasn't that bad for me or yeah, but I never got a DUI or yeah, but I didn't have legal trouble or, you know, and so it's like, that's not surrender and that's not willingness. That's still living in justification. And so you have to be willing to stop justifying and denying and, and honest, just be honest to really look at everything as honestly as you can. And it's so Mm -hmm. challenging. And I think like you were saying with willingness is you can think in the moment that you are, it's like, well, I'll, I'll do anything. I'll, I'll literally do anything. Oh, but wait, I won't do that. And it's like, if you're having the yeah, buts or the, well, I'll literally do anything. And then someone makes a suggestion to you and you're like, well, I won't do that. Like, well, then you're really not willing a hundred percent. When you're in the midst of you know, walking in dysfunction, living in some kind of dysfunctional coping strategy, and your emotions are tied up in it, what looks very clear from the outside doesn't feel very clear from the inside. So 
you know, we can look and say, okay, these are my bright lines. If I get a DUI, I know I'm in trouble. If I start wetting the bed, I know I'm in trouble. Mm -hmm. So then, you know, someone starts wetting the bed and they're like, oh yeah, but I was really deep asleep. Oh, but I had an extra cup of coffee that day. Like, <laughs> Because mm -hmm. it it doesn't feel so bad when you're there, right? Or oh, I got a DUI, but you know there was a trap, like or oh, but it wasn't my fault. Like, right. When you're in it, it doesn't look so clear when you're in the midst of it. Partly because you're tangled up in it, but also our self perception is dulled by the numbing, whatever our numbing mechanism is that we're doing. It really dulls our self perception. So it's just so it's it's so tricky and i feel like sometimes having those things that whatever our warning signs are and then i think it was a uh, robin williams who said you know he kept lowering his standards in accordance with his behavior because we justify these things so yeah i think even just awareness that that is a pattern to to ride to ride our our addiction or behavior or patterns mm -hmm down that's how we get sucked down into it and i really got goosebumps darcy when you talked about going back to alcohol for a second time after having a year of sobriety and going into that 10 month spiral and how how your addiction just picked up where it left off that never ceases to amaze me when i hear of that does that speak to a neurological change that we picked right up where we left off. I think so. And I had done, like I said, that four years time of kind of being curious about sobriety and learning and lots of talking in groups and, and, and being kind of becoming part of this idea of, of the way alcohol can affect us and how it works. And I had learned by so many people saying that you pick up right where you left off. It's progressive. It gets worse. The t no matter how much time goes by, it doesn't matter. You kind of, your brain just kind of has become wired this way. And I remember when I was deciding I was going to drink that three weeks after having my daughter, I kind of remember in the back of my head thinking, well, guess we're going to find out, you know, like everyone tells me this, but let's just see, maybe somehow I'll be the exception. And I can tell you, I definitely was not the exception. <laughs> You know, having kind of taken some time to learn about the neurochemistry and the way that the dopamine and all the neurotransmitters in our brain work, it is literally a rewiring of our brain. And it's like we now have this hypersensitivity to what that those neurochemicals do in our brains. And and those receptors are kind of all there. And so just because maybe they're dormant in the fact that they're not being stimulated, if you put in whatever the stimulation is that they need, it's like they just fire right back up like a Christmas tree. They really do. And it's unfortunate because it's like, right, that rewiring. Like my, my therapist used to always say, we can make different pathways because we've kind of conditioned ourselves like Pavlov's dog, you know, you hear that bell ring and you start to salivate. And it's like, we have those same sort of connections with what our substances are. It's like, I'm at a Christmas party and everyone around me is drinking and there's this song on and it, it's like, it fires those bells off in our head. But every time we travel a different path and we get around 
whatever that is, we can make new trails, we can make new pathways in our mind that we can start to use instead and they get easier and easier to travel with practice the more we do them. But those old trails are there. And so it's like when you go back and you go to that drinking or whatever the substance may be, it's like you've just taken a trailblazer through those old trails that were kind of dormant and they're, it's like they're a freeway again. They're a freeway. Right. And I, I feel like that goes back to what we were talking about earlier. Like why, why does it feel okay to, to sort of cross the lines that we created for ourselves? And it's because you are in that dopamine highway right like you're in that Mm -hmm. you're in that pleasure reward cycle that feels good and clouds your judgment and recovery really is all about rediscovering new comforts new ways to self-soothe and create pleasure for ourselves and just that is recovery really is taking out that old behavior and creating new ones and and learning to live in those new pathways. I love the way you explain that. That just makes it make so much sense. So what are some of the new ways that you have learned to comfort and cope and and survive? Well, I'd say the biggest is just my thought processes now. Um, I've gotten a lot better at tolerating being uncomfortable. Um, you know, I really don't like, I don't think any of us like those negative feelings as far as being irritated or angry or frustrated or sad, those negative emotions. But the, I've come to this new kind of understanding that as a human, you can't really live your life without having that stuff happen. And I just never knew how to deal with it before. And now I would say, I'm a lot more patient with myself in terms of, okay, so you're kind of irritated right now. Your kids are really driving you up the wall, but that's okay. You know, go go on a walk or take a deep breath or have a time out. Like I just can talk myself through. I used to tell myself, you shouldn't get so frustrated. You shouldn't get so irritated. And I would really belittle the feelings I was having when they were negative and tell myself I was bad for having those thoughts. And now. I just allow it and I know it will pass and I know that you have to just be able to sit in the discomfort and kind of let it work on you and maybe you can learn something from it and then every time you do you kind of re-ingrain your ability to do so. When I get to a really bad place of it's like especially in early sobriety where I, I would just get so overwhelmed with my life very easily. I would just tell my husband, I need to get out of the house. And I would go on a long walk and I would listen to this podcast or I would listen to Brene Brown or Glennon Doyle or people that I, that really stimulated my thought processes and would take me out of wherever I was and put me somewhere else mentally. Um, exercise has always been huge. And uh, I would say it's my most powerful release and source of positive endorphins now and um, it always had been but now it's kind of like if I can go get a good exercise and sweat then I immediately it's like move a muscle change a mood I just immediately feel like a new person and like a weight's been lifted off my shoulder so 
I think the key is being patient enough to just learn and discover what you need when you need it. Like yesterday, for example, I normally do a crazy 60 minute workout and I was just feeling a little bit nervous about today and stuff. And I, I, I did kind of a more yoga meditative thing because I just felt like that's what my mind and my body needed. And I just listened to that. And then also learning to talk to yourself in a way that is more patient and tolerable, like you would talk to someone else that you really love and care about. And if you're having a hard moment, it's okay. Just like, I literally tell myself like, you know, you're, you're kind of in a snarky mood right now, but you're human and you can't be happy all the time. And you know, your family's just going to have to deal with it because it's going to pass and, and then it'll be fine. And it's like, I just changed the total, the entire way I talk to myself. Earlier, you said that, you know, part of the problem was that you were trying to pretend everything was fine after losing your son and going through all of the emotion of that feeling that you had to say, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. And, you know, one thing I've learned in recovery is that that's a big fat lie that we all tell ourselves. <laughs> everything's, everything's okay. I'm fine. I'm fine. And it, it's just denial. It's just denial that we're not okay and fear of speaking up and saying, I'm not okay. And I have to trust that people will still love me and support me if I'm not saying I'm fine all the time. I can hear in what you just said, mm -hmm. you've stopped telling yourself that lie or you've stopped beating yourself up for refusing to tell that lie of being able to say, okay, I'm not okay right now and that's okay. And so we need to do something about that. I love that your recovery has brought you to that place. It's just such an example of the simplicity of recovery, even in the face of all the big, hard life stuff that, that we have to work on and get through. It really is just that simple sometimes of just taking a breath being honest, and being kind to ourselves. My last question for you is really about the response from your friends and family, how open you are with other people about your recovery, how you talk about it, and, and what kind of feedback you've gotten. That's been a work in progress for me. One of the biggest things I think that kept me away from asking for help for so long was the fear of what others would think and the fear that I'd ruin this image of Darcy having her act together all the time. I just didn't want anyone to know I was struggling and that, you know, I had a lot of shame associated with that. And so in the very beginning, I really kept my recovery and sobriety to myself and my husband and my mother, my family, my immediate circle. And I didn't share with anybody that I didn't feel like needed to know. I kind of kept it near and dear and protected because I felt like it was my own little thing that I needed to protect and nourish and that it was no one else's business. And then as time has gone on and I've gotten more time and I'm getting more and more comfortable in my own skin and my story and having more of a sense of pride about what I've gone through and what my story is versus shame. I've just now gotten to a point where I'm starting to tell more friends. If it comes up, I don't, I don't go out of my way 
personally and say, oh, well, guess what? This is what I'm doing now. Just recently, we went to see some friends um, that we hadn't seen for a long time because of the pandemic. And, and normally they're drinking friends and I didn't drink anything. And later on, she texted and asked about it. And I went ahead and explained to her what was going on and, and, and wasn't embarrassed about it. I'm not shouting it from the rooftops. You know, I, I have to be careful with my husband's work, with my patients. But when it seems appropriate to share and to open up and to be honest, I have no problem doing so. Darcy, thank you so much for sharing your story today and opening your heart and, and offering your story of hope and change and truth and courage to all of our listeners. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you so much, Jean. It's been an honor to be here. That's all for this week, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. All the best as we wrap up all things 2020. And I will see all of you in the new year. Until then, take good care. I own it. I did that. Not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses. I just want to be free from the power weakness had on me In a dark corner is where shame likes to hide We think you're strong just cause you'll keep it on the side It just stays in wait there to rob you of your pride Just want to be free from power. Oh, this head on You don't have to shout it out on Main Street to be clear. You don't need to whisper to confession in ears. The person you should talk to is looking at you in the mirror. And the one who matters most can always hear When you say I old, I did it Not proud, but that was me And when I face it, I take back a little dignity I'm not looking for excuses I just want to be free from the power Oh, you miss head on me When you say I old, I did that Not proud, but that was me I take back a little dignity I'm not looking for excuses I just want to be free